Well, good morning, everybody. And again, congratulations, Coach Brooks oh, and Grace. Good job, Dad and others. And there, we had other uh, state placers, too, here. So great job, everybody. Thank you. Um, yep, I knew that would happen. All right. Just talk amongst yourselves for a minute. It's telling me I'm good to go, so I'll let you guys figure it out. Not that big a deal. Okay, if you would, turn to that passage if you haven't already, Matthew chapter 8 in your Bibles. And we are moving along in Matthew, and if you remember, Jesus finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of the sermon, after he preached this big, I mean, it's become, you know, the most well-known sermon in history, uh, it says that as he came down from the, as he finished, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were so astonished because he was teaching them as one who actually knew what he was talking about. Like he'd actually seen and heard these things and he knew, and he was one with authority, not like their scribes. And then in chapter eight, verse one, it says that as he goes about his ministry now, great crowds are following him. And then when we get to chapter eight, he's now performed three different miracles and really many more along with that, along with these healings that we read about. We get to this place in verse 18 where Jesus kind of lifts his head up and he looks around and it says Jesus saw a crowd or a great crowd around him. And it's kind of like, he, it, it feels like he's been clueless to it up to the point. Now we know Jesus isn't clueless, but it feels like he kind of stopped and surveyed the scene and went, hold on, what are all these people doing here? And he sees them and he notices them and their presence now becomes for him the impetus for him now to make a conscious distinction between his disciples and the crowd. Now, this distinction here in the story is a geographical distinction. He's going to ask his disciples to go across to the other side of the lake. But what's important behind this, it's, it's this deeply symbolic within the narrative, is that Jesus is moving and and creating really a line in the sand between those who are following him and those who who aren't. If you were here last week, we talked about Jesus healing, and he healed all these people, including Peter's mother-in-law. And then it quotes this passage from Isaiah in the Old Testament, which really pictures Jesus as being this compassionate servant. So oftentimes when when we think of Jesus, we think of his compassion. We think of his kindness. We think of his his touch, his healing, his, his love. And that is certainly true. But now in these verses this week, we have a Jesus who's not afraid to draw a line in the sand. A severe line in the sand. A line of a distinction between his true disciples and the crowd. Remember a few weeks ago, I I said something about it's easy easy to follow Jesus when the crowd is following, following Jesus, isn't it? It's easy to follow Jesus when everybody else is doing it. It's easy to follow Jesus when your friends are following Jesus. But remove everybody else and you're the last one standing out there exposed and vulnerable. And all of a sudden it's difficult to follow Jesus. It becomes more difficult when the crowd disappears. So so this short passage here is really structured to draw out this distinction. And Jesus is clarifying the requirements for discipleship the requirements that he demands. So verse 18, 
Here we have a picture of Jesus. When he saw the crowd around him, it says he gave orders to go to the other side. How many of you have been in the military before? Okay, when, when I say give orders, that means something, doesn't it? A direct verbal order. That's a command. And if you don't keep it, what happens? You're in trouble. You get flogged. Okay, probably not shot. Maybe thrown in the brig. Something like that. But the, the command is from one who has authority. So here is King Jesus issuing a direct verbal order to his disciples. Let's go to the other side. And now look forward a few verses to verse 23. What happens? The order is obeyed. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and they went. And so these two statements, Jesus giving his, his command in verse 18 and verse 23, his command being obeyed, actually is these bookends now to these two short conversations on the beach with these two potential candidates for discipleship. So take a moment, if you will, just to picture the scene. Jesus is healing all these people, and then all of a sudden he looks up and he goes like, wow, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of people here. There's a crowd here. There's a throng of people. And he speaks to his disciples. We don't know if it's just quietly speaking to a few of them or if he says this out loud, but he says something in terms of, hey, we got to get out of here. Let's get to the other side of the lake. Now, we don't know how many disciples he has at this point. All that we know is that he has at least four and two sets of brothers, Andrew and Peter, and James and John. And, and what do these guys do? What's their profession? They're fishermen, right? So when he says, let's go to the other side of the lake, they know exactly what to do. So you can picture these guys going like, oh, okay, we'll go get our boats ready. So they take off, they go down to the shore, they begin to get, to get their boats ready, and then Jesus begins to make his way down to the shore to get into the boat to go to the other side. And along with him, you would imagine, is this crowd coming along, walking with him, maybe accompanying him down to the beach, to the shore, to these boats. And in this crowd are a bunch of people who have probably come for miracles. Some of them have perhaps been healed by Jesus or had demons cast out of them. And some of them are his disciples, people who have said they're going to follow him or people that he's called to follow them. So there's this mixed group of disciples and members of the crowd. And the invitation for us this morning is really to place ourselves in this story, in this moment, where we have to make a decision. Will I remain here on the shore as a part of this crowd and watch Jesus get into the boat and wave him farewell as he goes to the other side, or will I join him and get in the boat, even though I have no idea where the boat is going to go and where Jesus is taking these men. What does it mean for me in this moment to decide one way or the other? You might look back on your life at moments where you made a decision that changed the course of your life. Ever ask anybody to marry you? Ever say yes to somebody who asked you to marry them? Ever say no to somebody who asked you to marry them? That'd be an interesting story. I want to hear. <laughs> Have you ever had to make a decision on a career or a college or taking a job, maybe in a different state or in a different country, or maybe deciding not to take that job and staying put where you are? We all make decisions that change the course of, their li of our lives. And in this moment, standing on the beach, 
This could have been you having to make a decision. Will I follow Jesus into the boat or not? I remember when I was a freshman in high school, I was part of the youth group here at First Baptist Church. And we would have a Sunday school class during the Sunday school hour. Every, you guys remember Sunday school? Every Sunday morning before the church service and up in the youth room there, uh, Luke Hendricks was the pastor and um, a lot of helpers, a lot of uh, volunteers in there, the people that I know and love and respect. And there was probably about 30 or 40 high schoolers in the room for this Sunday school. Luke had been talking to us about creating a student leadership team, a ministry team, if you will, of students who would serve and who would lead the rest of the youth. And this morning, uh, in particular, stands out in my mind because I was sitting there and I had come to faith. I had given my life to Jesus when I was in eighth grade. So this was about a year after that. And during that time, I lived as somebody who had one foot in the world, maybe one and a half or one and three quarter feet in the world, and the other foot willing to follow Jesus. I wanted to do all the things that my peers, that my buddies, and that the popular people at school were doing. I wanted to dabble. I wanted to pursue those things. And yet, I felt this call to follow Jesus. And so, here I am with this struggle in the middle of Sunday school. And Luke says, okay, for those of you who are going to be part of this student leadership team, we're going to go in the other room right next door. And then everybody else is going to stay here and uh, so-and-so is going to teach. And so this group of kids gets up and goes in there. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I think I should be part of that team, but I haven't been invited. And in fact, I was the kid that Luke tried to pray out of the youth group. <laughs> so I'm not sure if, I want, if he wants me in there. But I remember that moment where I got up and I went to Luke and I said, hey, should, should I be part of this or not? And Luke just very graciously very gently said, if you want to come in, come in. And it honestly changed the course of my life to, to where a few years later I felt God's call to ministry, and, and here I am. Now, perhaps other things could have taken place intervening, but you know, you know what I mean when I say there's that moment of decision. There's that moment when you have to say, am I going to get on the boat or not? And I think it's the, the same question that impels these two short conversations here, which probably took place on this beach as Jesus was walking down with the crowd around him, getting into the boat to go to the other side. And these conversations really act as illustrations of the various responses that we have in our own hearts when Jesus calls us to follow him, when Jesus calls us to obey him. So the question hangs in the air, and this is the question of the morning, Will you leave the crowd and get in the boat with Jesus? Or will you hang out on the shore? Because discipleship not only means leaving the crowd, but it also means counting the cost. So, so the first man that comes to Jesus approaches him on the way to the boat, and he was a scribe, verse 19. A scribe was a Bible teacher of the day. These were the experts in the Old Testament. These were the, the guys who'd gone off to Bible school and were ready uh, to teach you anything you needed to know about the law or the Old Testament. This man was a scholar, and perhaps as a teacher himself, he had heard Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps he had been one of those who'd been amazed at how authoritative Jesus' teaching was. And then perhaps he saw Jesus do some of these miracles that he did. 
And he decided, I'm so impressed with this guy that I'm going to go ahead and join his school. I'm going to be one of his disciples. And it says, he came up and said to Jesus, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. So here's this scribe, this Bible teacher, this expert in the law approaching Jesus. And notice the first word that he says to Jesus. Unlike everyone else who speaks to Jesus in this chapter, he doesn't call Jesus Lord. He calls him teacher. Now, Jesus was a teacher. Jesus was probably the best teacher that's ever walked the face of the earth, and this is certainly true. But the man misses the fact that Jesus is much more than a teacher. You also notice, not, not only how he, how he addresses Jesus, but you'll notice where he starts when he talks to Jesus. He starts from a place of pride. I will follow you wherever you go. He's pretty zealous. He's also pretty self-confident. He assumes in, in some sense that he's got what it takes to follow Jesus. Jesus, I'll volunteer for your team, and you're so lucky to have me. I mean, look at all the other people you've chosen, Jesus. You've chosen these four fishermen? And, and who knows who else at this point? I've gone to school. I've got a degree. I know stuff. You need somebody like me on your team. It is your lucky day. I'm probably the best disciple you've got. And I'll go with you wherever. And Jesus points out, of course, that the man really has no idea what he's talking about. Rather than, rather than offering kind of this upscale training program, Jesus will give education through experience. He'll give trial by fire to his disciples. The only entry requirement, the only entry requirement will be completely relinquishing all of your current and future dreams. That's it. That's all you got to do to follow Jesus. Even Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, when you sign on to my school, if you follow me, you're not going to get a pillow every night. You're not going to sleep in the same bed. There's no four or five star hotels here. There's no three square meals a day. And, and, and sure, Jesus has just finished telling his disciples that as they follow him and pursue his kingdom, that God's going to dress them better than he dresses the flowers of the field. He's going to feed them better than he feeds the birds of the air. Sure, God is going to do all those things, but to follow Jesus is to lay down the privilege and the right and the expectation of comfort in exchange for serving the king. You see, discipleship comes at a significant cost. Advancement, position, fame, prestige, none of those things are, are guaranteed when you follow Jesus. The road we walk when we follow Jesus is probably not the road that we had pictured in our minds when we signed up. It will often be uncomfortable. It will likely be difficult. And disciples of Jesus will often feel homeless, alone, and abandoned. Okay, so if that's the commercial, who's signing up for the free trial? Anybody? Jesus has already promised persecution back in chapter 5 to his disciples. Blessed are the persecuted. And the prospect of pretty extreme physical danger and even pretty extreme spiritual battle are on the horizon. If you look at the rest of chapter 8, that's where he's going. 
He's going to the middle of a storm on the sea. He's going to go confront a couple demon-possessed guys. This man comes to Jesus self-confident. He comes to Jesus arrogant. He comes to Jesus over-promising. And Jesus counters his pride, not just by cutting his legs out from under him, but he actually counters his own pride with his own humility. There's a lot of, actually, theological significance here in verse 20, when Jesus says, the Son of Man has nowhere to, to rest his head. That title, Son of Man, is packed full of significance. We're not going to get to it this week. We will later in Matthew. In this instance, what Jesus is really referring to is his, his own poverty. The, the King of Heaven himself, who deserves to have everyone and everything in the universe bow down to him, has given up that glory to become human, to become a man, to walk amongst us, to take on our illnesses and our diseases. He is the one who has set aside all material comforts, everything that's owned, owed to him, and he's adopted a life that would be full of suffering. So this king who walks in humility calls his disciples to walk in the same kind of radical dependence upon their father. And brothers and sisters, if we want to follow Jesus, we must realize that we're following a homeless man. A homeless man who wore humility like a garment, who willingly submitted himself to public humiliation. Why would he ask any less of his followers? Jesus calls us and his followers to a life that doesn't give a lot of credibility to natural pride or arrogance or overconfidence. In fact, if we follow him, Jesus says, I'll help you get rid of those things. I'll undercut them every turn of the way. Jesus' way is not the American way. It's funny that just in a few verses, Jesus has just told this man, who says, I will go with you wherever you go. I'll follow you. And then Jesus says, you, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's, it's funny if you look at verse 24 that Jesus is actually laying his head down in a boat in the middle of the storm and sleeping. These are the kind of places that Jesus says, if you follow me, these are the kind of places that you're going to sleep. And I think Jesus' conversation with this man actually anticipates this story, this, this next story of the storm on the sea and even the wares that Je Jesus does lay his head and some of the places that he calls us to follow him are scary places. The, the, the places that Jesus chooses to take up residence are not the kind of places where we sign up to spend the night. They're places we don't naturally want to follow. And Jesus purposely takes his disciples to places that will break us of our pride, break us of our self-confidence, our arrogance, and our grand, our grand promises to do great things for God. How many of you want to do great things for God? How many of you have ever bragged about the great things you've done for God? Let me tell you a story. About 17 years ago, Carrie and I were working and living in Southern California at a church, and we uh, felt God's call really to come back to the Northwest, and so we were heading to Seattle, and we were going to work with a, with a group of church plants up in Seattle, and, um, and it, was, it was a difficult thing. It, it wasn't easy, but... Um, th and this is something a after the fact that Carrie and I have had to understand about ourselves and really soul search and confess and ask God for forgiveness for. But even in that process, uh, as even we led our, our family, our kids in this, 
we were thinking, this was how our mind was, we're going to go do great things for God. Look at the sacrifices we're making for God's kingdom. Now, we never said that out loud, for crying out loud. But we sure, we sure went in that direction. That was, that's what was driving us. That was, was in our minds, was these great things that we were doing for God. And God, when we follow Jesus, Jesus will take those great dreams and pull the rug out from under us and say, really, you're going to do great things for me? You will, but you won't do them from a place of pride. You won't do them from a place of arrogance. You don't, won't do them from a place of self-importance. You'll do them from your face. And that's where we ended up, was on our face. See, we can brag about all the places we're willing to follow Jesus, but the crucible of discipleship comes when we go to the place where we never wanted to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't withhold storms, and he doesn't withhold poverty, and he doesn't withhold every other trouble from his disciples. He loves us too much to withhold those things from us. He requires that we count the cost. So the question is, do you, do you count the cost of discipleship? And then, after you've counted that cost, do you get in the boat with Jesus? Discipleship means counting the cost. Discipleship also means being all in. So he's confronted this scribe with his overzealous arrogance, and he continues to go to the boat to get to the other side. But another man now comes up to Jesus with a quick and pretty reasonable request. This man's actually identified as another disciple. So somewhere along the line, this, this man had connected with Jesus. Maybe Jesus had come and said, follow me. Maybe uh, he had begun following Jesus at some point. Maybe he was a buddy of Andrew or Peter or John and James. We don't know who this man is. We just know that he's identified as a disciple. And you can imagine him kind of going through his mind, well, I got all this stuff to do. I got these, I got these things and responsibilities. I'm just going to go let him know. And then maybe I'll meet him on the other side. Or maybe I'll meet, meet him in a week in a Jericho or somewhere. And on the surface, this man actually comes with the most reasonable request in the world. If you can think of, like, this is the thing that your boss would say, oh, it's okay to take the day off of work today. This is it. The most reasonable request in this culture that you can think of. It's not like he was saying, hey, I got to go uh, finish overseeing the construction of my mansion. Or I had a three-week trip to the, to the Mediterranean Sea booked, a vacation. I got to go finish that first, and then I'll come follow you. It's not like he was asking for something extravagant. He was appealing to his familial responsibilities, to his own obedience to the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. Saying, Jesus, I need to go fulfill the fifth commandment here. This was of high value in the day. Jesus himself in other places affirmed that children owe honor and care to their parents. To bury one's father was dignified. It was honorable. It was a respectful, necessary thing for a son to do. And there's, there's a ton of cultural nuance here that we just don't see or know that could be drawn out. But whatever was going on and wh whatever was at play for, for this man, the main point here, the major point, is that the man is giving the most reasonable request possible in this culture, and Jesus' negative response should be shocking. 
It should cause us to go, whoa, Jesus, what in the world? Why would you talk to this guy like this? should raise an eyebrow for us. And as is Jesus' way of teaching the shock value is meant to uncover, it's always meant to uncover what is going on in our hearts. And Jesus is seeking to uncover what's in this man's heart, which is this, that he's simply putting his family in a place of priority over Jesus. And all of that comes out in the important little word, first. Lord, let me first go and bury my father. So in claiming to fulfill the fifth commandment, this man is actually breaking the first commandment. You shall love, or excuse me, you shall have no other gods before me. His request actually undercuts what Jesus just said in Matthew 6, Seek first, same word, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So to say Lord in one breath, and maybe even in the same breath, say, but first, is actually duplicitous. It's saying, Lord, I put you first, but I'm going to do this other thing first. You're first, but this is first. It can't be. And Jesus bluntly and plainly calls this man out of his duplicity and says to him, follow me, and this is harsh, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Brutal. Jesus, really? Aren't you the compassionate guy? Aren't you the kind? Aren't you the generous boss? This was a man bringing the best possible reason to delay the demands of discipleship. In other words, the best possible reason not to follow Jesus right now. And Jesus calls us, all, all of us, to be all in and nothing else, not even family. Jesus says can come first. Jesus isn't calling this man to abandon his family altogether. He's simply explaining that compared to devotion to him, they must be a distant second. Matthew 10, 35, this is just a couple chapters from now. He says, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. These, come out of Je- These words come out of Jesus' mouth. And the question is, are we prone to make excuses, really excuses for our idols, Excuses for the gods that we want to put first rather than following Jesus. And if so, what good excuses do you use to avoid discipleship? To put Jesus off or obedience off to a more convenient time. This is where Jesus' shock factor needs to hit us between the eyes. We must realize that if we aren't willing to drop everything and follow him now, we never will. We will always come up with something that's more important. An appointment, a vacation, a business trip, a career, an investment opportunity, an enticing relationship, projects, so many more worthwhile things in this world will take precedence over discipleship. Perhaps the most shocking thing is when Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. And in this, I think Jesus is making another stark distinction between his disciples and the crowd. 
His disciples, those who would follow him, are those who he would consider to be alive, who he would consider to have spiritual life. Those who don't follow him are those who he would identify as spiritually dead. And the ultimatum is clear for this disciple. If you leave me now, you choose death over life. If you go to this funeral, you choose death over life. But in Matthew 10, 39, Jesus will say this, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you pursue this life of priorities that come above me, all that you will find there is death. It's interesting that the, the place where Jesus will now take his disciples through a storm, and then they land on the other side of the Sea of Galilee at a graveyard. Isn't that interesting? Jesus says, I, I want you to leave your father's grave and come with me to a different grave. You want to go to this place where you think you'll find life and you're actually going to find death, and I'm going to call you to bury those things that you put first. And I'm going to call you to scary places. I'm going to call you to actually die to yourself and come to a place where you will see that I am the king who, who exists far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every other name that is named. And the call of Jesus is simply this. And it's stark but it's life-giving. Leave one grave for another. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To follow Jesus is to bury your previous life and entrust your life completely to him. It's to trust him with your life and with your death. Discipleship means being all in. Finally, discipleship simply means following Jesus. So these two short interchanges culminate. I mean, this probably took place in just a few minutes, but it culminates in the separation that Jesus calls for, finally with the disciples getting away from the crowd simply by choosing to get into the boat with Jesus. I think it's significant in verse 23 that Jesus gets into the boat first, and what do his disciples do? They do what disciples ought to do. They follow him, it says. His disciples followed him. This is the simple heart of discipleship, following Jesus wherever he goes, getting into the boat if Jesus is in the boat. We don't know, we have no idea if this zealous scribe or this hesitant disciple got into the boat. We don't know what happened to them. And I think that's on purpose. I think the silence of what they chose to do is on purpose because the text leaves the decision with us to answer the question for ourselves, am I getting in the boat or not? Will I count the cost or not? Will I be all in or not? Will I follow Jesus? So that's the question. Will you get in the boat? I love in this picture that Jesus treats these two men very differently. He knows that they're unique. He knows that they have different heart motivations. He discerns that, and he tells them exactly what they need to hear in the moment. And I think Jesus treats each of us differently as well. He treats each of us uniquely. Some of us need to be called up short. 
woe with the pride. And others of us need to be challenged out of our comfort zone, challenged to move and to do and to follow. Which one are you? Are you, are you prone to think too highly of yourself and all that you have to offer to Jesus just so long as it doesn't take too much of you? Do you need to come to Jesus today and count the cost of discipleship, a road that will cost you your very life? Do you need to humble yourself before not only your teacher, but your Lord and trust Him in all things? Or are you prone to make excuses rather than to obey? Is Jesus calling you today out of your complacency, out of your scattered priorities to to be His fully devoted disciple? Is Jesus targeting your idols today? Those things that you regularly, sometimes even unconsciously, place on the altar above him and before him. Will you lay down your pride or your excuses and get into the boat with Jesus, come what may? This morning, as all mornings are, is a time of decision in that regard. Will I follow Jesus into the boat? And we're taking communion this morning, and communion is a celebratory meal where we remember what Jesus has done for us, how he, has, how he took on humility, even humility to the point of death, even death on a cross for our sakes. That's the Jesus that we follow. And I invite you as followers of Jesus to come and partake of this meal and, and receive in it the grace of Christ the free gift of salvation that he gives us to remember his body and his blood poured out to pay for our sins because we didn't have to. The entrance price to follow Jesus is Jesus' own blood and body, his gift. To follow Jesus, we too, in following, in the following, will die. And so I would come and just challenge you in prayer as you come together with others and take communion this morning, we have uh, three stations up here, and I think there's another station in the back. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're welcome to come. And just my prayer for you during this time would, would be just to allow God to search your heart. Are you counting the cost? Are you all in? What does it look like for you to follow Jesus? Let's pray. Jesus, our Father, we do thank you. We're grateful for the good gift of your sacrifice, the good gift of yourself that you have graced us with. We're beyond grateful, grateful beyond words that you who was in the form of God did not account equality with God something to be grasped after, but you made yourself nothing and became a servant for our sake. You died in our place and on our behalf and Lord, as we take of this meal, of this bread and this juice, we remember your sacrifice. Remember what you paid for us. And Lord, we can't pay you back, but we can take on a life that looks like death in so many ways, but will ultimately end up in life because that's what you promised. And so God, challenge us. Where are we at this morning? Are we following you? What does it look like me, for me to count the cost, to be all in, to follow you into the boat wherever you would take me? God, do a work in our hearts as we go today in your name.